Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. Filling in for John O'Brien, I'm Kendra Hanna. In this episode, a new book by journalist and professor Howard French places Africa as the starting point of modern world history. In Born in Blackness, Africa, Africans, and the Making of the Modern World, 1471 to the Second World War, French argues that the age of discovery and the beginning of European colonialism was triggered not by Europe's desire to trade with Asia, but instead Portugal's interest in West African gold. There are a variety of traditional starting points for modern world history. That era after the Middle Ages that brought the Enlightenment, democracy, and industrialization, but most prioritize European history. French reframes modern world history by telling the story of the influence African empires had on international politics, the economic powerhouse of the Caribbean, and the Haitian Revolution's early spark for democracy. Howard French is a professor of journalism at Columbia University. Before entering journalism, he worked as a translator in the Ivory Coast. He then joined the New York Times, where he was a bureau chief from 1990 to 2008 in the Caribbean and Central America, West and Central Africa, Tokyo, and Shanghai. French is joined in conversation by Drago Little. Little has worked as an educator for over a decade. He teaches writing and literature at Rainier Scholars, a Seattle-based program serving students of color. This talk was presented on February 7th, 2022 by Town Hall Seattle. Hello, Professor. I'm going to ask a a, a Seattle-based question only because I think probably many of us in our audience are wondering about this. And so in the text, you say that Africa and Africans by a trade helped give birth to the coffee house uh, and via the coffee house, civic culture and civic engagement and an offshoot of civic engagement being the newspaper. And I found those three things like very, very compelling because coffee houses are a very essential part of civic life in Seattle. Can you say more about those connections? Yes, thank you. Um, I don't usually, uh, I've had a lot of conversations about the book. This is the first one that's opened with this question. So I, yeah. I, I like that. You found yeah. something to take me by surprise with. Um, I, I usually start much earlier in the history, and that's uh, we can go to earlier parts later if you'd like to. But you left one layer out of your very nice wind-up for the question. And, and so it didn't just lead to uh, civil society um, and civic conversations, as you said, but it, I would take it a step further and say that <clears throat> product of the uh, expropriated labors of enslaved Africans was a key element in the very founding or anchoring of democracy in England. Uh, and that, those, that democracy in England itself grew out of the coffee house and of, and of newspapers. And so let me take this mini story to its roots and say that... Um, England um, uh, uh, colonized uh, Barbados, the island, small island in the Eastern Caribbean uh, in uh, around 1830, uh, and had copied the methods uh, that Portuguese and Dutch had used in spreading sugar cultivation uh, in uh, South America, specifically in, in what is now known as Brazil, in the century prior to uh, the British takeover of Barbados. Barbados was uninhabited at the time that, that the English showed up there. Um, and so uh, sugar in that prior previous century under the Portuguese and the Dutch had had one more wealth for Portugal than the much more famous 
sources of wealth that we all hear story, have heard stories about as children in our high school or college, uh, grade school, high school, or college educations, right? About the Spanish conquistadors who arrive in the Americas and, you know, through their incredible, as it, it's usually told, courage, right? Um, uh, in small numbers, managed to defeat uh, huge uh, Native American empires and, and thereby acquire control over precious metals in these kingdoms in vast quantities. And so the main precious metals were silver and gold. The Spanish carted these things back to Europe in special ships made for the purpose, very big, large, big bellied vessels called galleons. And so this is the most famous story of wealth acquisition in the sort of early modern age, right? In fact, a much bigger wealth strategy had been operated by the Portuguese prior to the takeover of Barbados. And it involved the expropriation, as I said, of African labor, putting Africans to work on this thing that we call in a very prettified way plantations, which are really industrial prison labor camps, and extracting uh, production out of Africans at the tip of the lash, uh, meaning they're under surveillance and being bodily uh, punished in order to sustain high, high rates of productivity out of them. So the English copy this in 1630. Uh, the English uh, get the recipe essentially from the Dutch for growing sugar in plantations. Uh, and this takes off in Barbados. And Barbados, a little tiny island. It's one third of the size of Los, the city of Los Angeles. Uh, over the course of the rest of that century, earns more money for England. Britain doesn't exist yet. Earns more money for England than all than itself in that tiny little space, all of the gold and silver that the Spanish took from the Americas. Um, a byproduct of that, and a huge byproduct. So we don't usually hear any of what I've just said uh, so far, but a huge byproduct of that of all of this goes to your question. With the growth of sugar in England at this rate of output and efficiency, sugar goes overnight in Northern Europe from being an extraordinarily rare um, luxury item that only uh, royals and their sort of intimate court members could afford uh, to sample to becoming an item on the table of even commoners, a, an item of mass consumption. And alongside of the cult cultivation and production through these industrial prison labor camp processes of sugar came also via African labor, the plantation cultivation of, of coffee. And so coffee and sugar take off in the European uh, diet at the same time through the same identical process of expropriated labor. And in the year 1650, the first um, British or English, it's Britain doesn't get created until 1707. The first English coffee house is created in Oxford and uh, coffee takes off immediately there and is quickly copied in London, where it booms on a far larger scale because of the size of London. And what made coffee so popular was the availability of sugar, right? People drank it then as now in England, sweet, right? And so coffee is not naturally a bitter thing. It was an unfamiliar product in Europe prior to this. Suddenly you have this sweetened product, which has some special attributes that are worth um, sort of focusing on very quickly. Water had been not hygienic water had been, uh, had been in uh, uneven supply in Europe for, from the beginning of time. 
You never knew what you were going to get when you drank water. You're going to get sick half the time, right? Often you, and, often you got cholera from drinking the water. Exactly. You might die. And so um, in the workplace uh, in England, in the centuries prior to this, in order not to lose workers uh, and to keep people happy, uh, employers uh, supplied ale to their workers. Now, the downside of supplying ale to their workers is that, of course, people experienced torpor, which is a polite uh, way of saying they became drunk, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's the trade-off. Uh, mm -hmm. People are happy workers for a little while, and then by the afternoon, they're sleepy or drunk, and they're, 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 they fall off, right? Mm -hmm. With the introduction of coffee, suddenly you have stimulated workers, coffee sweetened with cheap calories and sugar, drinking mm -hmm. hygienic fluids because it's been boiled, and you're wide awake, right? Mm -hmm. And you can get productivity throughout the day from them. Out of that experience, somebody gets the idea, why don't I just sell coffee in a, little, in a little shop that specializes in coffee? This is the birth of the coffee shop. And so it starts in Oxford. It spreads almost immediately to London. It takes off like wildfire in London. And as it does so, another entrepreneurial insight comes from somebody who says, look at this, all of these stimulated people sitting around discussing the affairs of the day. What if we sold them a sheet printed with the latest news and gossip of trade from ships coming in from various ports in Europe or the daily events in the English parliament and things like this. And this is the birth of the newspaper as we know it. It grows out of this African labor, which produced the sugar and the coffee. And so this all happens right between um, the, the English Revolution, I'm sorry, the, yes, so the Glorious Revolution happens a few years after this. And as that takes place, by the time that takes place, by virtue of the invention of the newspaper and its takeoff in the midst of coffee shops, English people have been accustomed to taking, for the first time in history, commoners, taking the affairs of the day as their birthright as citizens, to be able to know about, to be informed about, and to be able to discuss freely the, the events of the day in, in their world. All of that flows from something so seemingly remote and, and obscure as the extortion of labor from Black people on islands like Barbados. Okay. So you mentioned when you're describing that, that they got the recipe for sugar from the Dutch. They also got another recipe from the Dutch, the grand design, which could be said as being the recipe for empire, possibly. Yes. Um, so you like complicated questions, and my my vice is giving too long answers. Um, um, but you are right. Um, so the Dutch were a plucky, entrepreneurial, very sea-faring uh, people, right? Uh, they didn't have any natural resources. They, their nation fronted, as we all know, the Atlantic Ocean. And so they made their livelihood out in the ocean, usually by trading and by services relating to seafaring, seafaring trading, right? Mm -hmm. um, and in um, uh, the 16th century, the Dutch begin to chafe at taxation from the Spanish crown. The Dutch were a colony of Spain in that time. And in 1580, Spain and Portugal, the Spanish and Portuguese crowns merged. Uh, and um, so the Dutch decided that the best way that we can weaken Spain, our enemy, and try to free ourselves is by attacking Portugal. Because as I said earlier, the greatest source of wealth in Iberia was not gold and silver taken from you know, the great kingdoms of South America and of Mexico. But in fact, 
the plantation, the product of plantation labor extorted from Africans on in in various places, right? And so the Dutch had this insight: if we attack the Portuguese in their uh, um, holdings in Brazil, we will deprive Spain, which was unified with Portugal at the time, of their most important source of income. Mm-hmm. And so the the Dutch pursue this strategy for the next for a ter- an incredibly long period of time, from 16, 1580 to sixteen forty. The Dutch mm-hmm. pursue this hit and run war with the Portuguese in which sometimes they actually took over places like Bahia in Northern Brazil uh, Mm -hmm. and secured control of it for themselves and took over the plantation trade themselves. Right. Uh, An interesting side story in all of this was that the, 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 that a kingdom in central Africa, which I think you're going to want to ask me about later anyway. So I may be spoiling a a question in advance, but, but, but called Congo spelled with a K very sophisticated kingdom that had established diplomatic relations with the Portuguese in the early 1500s, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, tired of its relations with Portugal because Portugal had begun to engage in a high volume slave trade in the region where the Congo kingdom was located. And this was destabilizing Congo. Mm-hmm. And so Congo it launched a diplomatic initiative of its own conception vis-a-vis the Dutch. Congo had diplomats in Europe at this time, had um, uh, bishops that were um, uh, um, trained in the Vatican, in fact, and and ambassadors in various European courts. The Congolese said to the Dutch, hey, we know you hate the Portuguese. We hate the Portuguese too. Let's team up and fight the Portuguese throughout the South Atlantic together. We'll help you here in Africa. We'll even send some people across the Atlantic to Brazil to help you, and we can we can help you overthrow the Portuguese, and in doing so, that will help free us of the Portuguese and of their obsession with trading human beings. Right. Um, so this was a brilliant idea. Um, uh, it um, eventually sputters out because the Spanish crown and the Portuguese crown uh, separate in 1640, and so the Dutch no longer have the same motivation that they once had before of attacking the Spanish, the the Portuguese in order to weaken the Spanish. But in the meantime, the port, the Dutch had developed this idea, which gets back to your question of thinking about empire as a holistic project where you were different port pieces of real estate offer different comparative advantages, Uh, human beings available for trade and slaves uh, in one place vast fertile terrains in another place where you can organize them through these industrial prison labor camp systems, Um, uh, commercial and service-oriented places like uh, New York, which was a Dutch colony at this time, and the Dutch and India subsequently, and even all the way further east to Malaya. So the Dutch thought of this, uh, they had a name for this as their great design. Um, and so Dutch was a tiny nation, public pun- punching, as the English like to say, well above their weight, thinking mm-hmm. very early on about global empire. And what happened to the Dutch, in fact, is that the English um, defeated them over a series of wars in the 17th century. And the English essentially stole the idea. And the whole notion of the British, em- not the whole notion, but the starting concept of the British Empire is very much uh, taken from the template of the Dutch great design. Right. So now you mentioned Congo, which we, we, we should get to before we run out of time. People do not typically associate that level of statecraft with Africa. 
So can you say more about what led Congo to enter into those types of relations with Portugal and later the Dutch? Well, first of all, let me disabuse your listeners or our, our viewers of this notion that Africa was bereft, has ever been bereft of statecraft, right? I think that this is a modern notion. Uh, I think this is a modern notion that grows out of the imposed horror uh, of the monstrosity of the, I don't really like this term, but I'm going to use it, of the transatlantic slave trade. Like the word plantation trade makes it sound somehow more sanitized than what the reality was, right? We all know, any American who's had any level of education knows that the United States was a participation in this thing called the transatlantic slave trade, and that to a very significant extent, early American history was founded on the um, uh, extraction of labor from enslaved people, right? We all know that. And so it's my theory, it's my view, that in order somehow to adjust psychologically, not just Americans, but Europeans also, probably even more so, because they were the principal agents of this slave trade over, over centuries, we have adjust for this mentally, this horror, by pretending that Africa was always an empty space, meaning bereft of achievement, that Africans didn't ever really amount to anything. So this helps normalize the notion of of abducting millions of people and working them to death in labor camps. Um, doesn't I don't think it makes most people feel good about it, but it seems somehow less bad if you can pretend that Africans never had much going for them anyway. Poor folks, right? They didn't have kingdoms, they didn't have law, they didn't have religion, they didn't have you know, learning, they didn't have anything. And so there's a very deep, there's a very deep Western tradition of pretending this, right? But Mm -hmm. if you go back and you look at the contemporary documents of the Mm -hmm. 16th century and of the 17th century, what you discover is that the Europeans of that time, as they're founding their first important connections with sub-Saharan Africa, are incredibly impressed by what they found on the ground. I'm not pretending to you that the entire political landscape of Africa was homogenous and that everywhere you looked, there were sophisticated societies, but Mm. there was no shortage of sophisticated societies. And the Portuguese and various other Europeans took ample note of this in their records, in their accounts of the day, right? Mm. Um, So up now coming to the Congo, Um, the the Portuguese arrive in Congo uh, in uh, around the year 1500, right? Uh, having already established uh, a very, very lucrative trade with a place in West Africa and what is now the country of Ghana at Elmina, uh, culminating more than a century of search for the source of wealth and gold in West Africa, right? The Portuguese finally find it at Elmina. And as they begin to explore the rest of Africa with the idea that Metal, the availability of precious metals must be associated with latitude. They had very primitive notions of geology and of geography. So they said, if we found gold at this latitude, there it must be present in other places near this latitude in Africa. So they begin to look around the West African and Central African coast a few degrees above and a few degrees below the equator. And a few degrees below the equator, they encounter a kingdom which we know of as Congo. And this really, really remarkable thing takes place. First of all, Congo at the time of the Portuguese arrival was at least as large as Great Britain, the entire Britain. 
in terms of the realm uh, 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 commanded by a king uh, and by his laws, right? Um, and so the, Cong- the British, I'm sorry, the Portuguese arrive and this extraordinary coincidence happens. The, the, the Congolese in their indigenous religion already used prominently the cross as a symbol. This has nothing to do with uh, a notion about Jesus. They did not have a story about Jesus, right? But the cross was one of the most important symbols. And here come these unknown foreigners who they had, because um, uh, where Congo is located, separated from uh, Northern Africa by uh, equatorial forests and therefore isolated from currents, other currents of trade that West Africans had long had with Europe. They had never experienced Europeans before. Here come Europeans using crosses um, in their religion. And so the Congolese had an immediate affinity for the Portuguese. And the Portuguese thought, because they also had their own superstitions, that there was this thing called Prester John, a myth about a black Christian king somewhere in Africa. They thought maybe they found this legendary black Christian king, right? And so a pretty friendly relationship is established between the two. And the Portuguese recognize immediately how sophisticated this realm of the Congo is in every way. They comp- they compare the capital sent, which the Portuguese called San Sebastian, with one of uh, Portugal's most important cities, Evora. Right? Yeah. Uh, that's how sophisticated uh, Congo was. Um, anyway, this sets off uh, extraordinary story of diplomatic and trade relations that ends up in in tragedy. I spoke about the Congolese alliance with the Dutch in order to overthrow the Portuguese. Right? That's because of this, the slave trade, right? Uh, um, but before that happens, Congo sent the sons of its elite by the dozens into Europe to uh, receive ecclesiastical training, to receive legal training, to to uh, represent the kingdom in various courts around Europe, etc. And they were respected as the equals of Europeans by the Europeans in this time. And so, and picking up on that point there, so the, the search for gold in Africa and the, the signaling that, that slaves were a resource, you say in the text that it sort of came out of the result of a, what could be called a failed red carpet moment on the part of Mensa Musa, but in terms of the propaganda of prestige and wealth had far-reaching effects. Can, yes. you, can you say more? About that, sure. I'm uh, sure. I'm not sure if the audience will know many of you uh, who Mansa Musa was, but this is the most important sort of starting point of my story. This is the foundation for my contention mm-hmm. that the modern age begins in European contact contact with Africa. So the normal modern story of the founding of the modern age is that the Europeans and especially the Iberians had an obsession with finding a maritime route to Asia, uh, and that. Finally, uh, this culminates in Columbus's quote-unquote discovery of the Americas, uh, which happened when he was, in fact, trying to find Asia, that he had a theory that he could find Asia by by going to the West, right? So that's a very simple sort of schoolchild version of how the modern age begins. And as this story is told, well above the schoolchild level, in college textbooks even now, if if Africa is mentioned at all, it's mentioned as an obstacle that the Europeans were trying to figure out how to circumnavigate Africa 
There was nothing of inherent interest in Africa, we are told, right? <clears throat> this couldn't, there, it's hard to find a greater perversion of the truth. So the, what really happened and how we really begin the modern age uh, starts uh, around uh, the first quarter of the 14th century in 1324 in the kingdom of Mali, which is in the Sahel region of West Africa. A king named Mansa Musa, Sahel, you talked about the sophistication of Africans. So the, the Mali was the successor to an even older empire called Ghana, which was not in the place where the modern country of Ghana is, is located somewhat confusedly. But if you the, the readers um, can imagine a map of Africa, th- these empires, Ghana first and then its successor, Mali, controlled a very large belt of West Africa just beneath the Sahara Desert. Okay. Right? The Sahel? All the way, uh, all the, the Sahel, all the way from Senegal to Sudan. In effect, right? Mm -hmm. Extraordinarily large territory controlled by a centrally centrally ruled by a kingdom. So we're talking about Mali. In 1324, the emperor of Mali, this man, Mansa Musa, sets off on pilgrimage to Mecca. And along the way, this is a 3,500-mile trip by camelback. He stops in Cairo. He has an enormous procession with him. And his procession is carrying 18 tons of pure gold. Um, Mali is uh, the greatest single source of n- known source of gold in the world in that era and remained so for a long time afterwards, right? Mm-hmm. So Mansa Musa arrives in Cairo with 13 tons of eight, 18 tons of gold. No one ever has seen one individual in control of such a quantity of gold. And he begins to distribute the gold, gold in acts of patronage and religious devotion and diplomacy to high and low through Egypt. And he gives away so much gold, and subsequently in Mecca, he gives away so much gold that the price of gold plummets for the next decade throughout the Mediterranean world. And word spreads from these events deep into Europe. And Portugal, which at the time was a very young and very weak, poor, uh, weak meaning poor kingdom under the Aviz dynasty, becomes not obsessed with finding a maritime route to Asia, but finding a way to connect, to discover a a path by sea to connect to the wealth of Mali. Portugal is, um, above all, desperate to find a a source of wealth that will allow it to survive the covetousness of Spain. Spain wants to reabsorb Portugal. And Portugal, being extremely weak and poor, without economic products of its own, is looking for something that can get it onto its feet. And so the story of Mansa Musa becomes their, the central driver of Portuguese history in this period. Um, and, and this leads to the creation of a variety of maps in Europe that are somewhat speculative, but also informed by trading communities, mostly of Jews who are operating across the Sahara in, via North Africa, And the most famous of these maps is a map called the Catalan Atlas, a section of which appears on the cover of my book. And it shows Mansa Musa sitting in the middle of the Sahel on a solid gold throne, holding a scepter of gold and an orb of gold in the other hand, and traders are coming from afar in order to trade with him. So this is the the image that the Portuguese have of, of the wealth of Africa. And this is what drives uh, the, the uh, age of exploration and discovery led by the Portuguese 
to make their way down the coast of Africa until they finally discover gold at Elmina in the kinds of quantities that they had hoped for. And this, I argue, is the beginning of the age of exploration, age of discovery, and thereby the start of the modern world. I'm sorry to be long in, in so many of my answers. Oh, no, please do. It, it's, it's really important to understand the Columbus story against this backdrop. So Christopher Columbus had been wandering around Europe. So the gold is discovered in Elmina in 1472. Christopher Columbus, by that 1471, I'm sorry, a a year that's mentioned in the title of my book. Mm -hmm. Columbus had been traveling around the courts of Europe already for a decade or two, seeking Mm -hmm. sponsors for his voyages. He had this notion, uh, basically based on science that other people had developed, that the earth was round, by the way, the Malians had known that via Islamic learning, which was developed in the 8th century, right? But the Europeans were just sort of beginning to wrestle with the idea that the earth might be round. And Columbus is trying to sell this scheme through all the courts that he could visit in Europe. If you just invest in my ventures, I'll, 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 find, some, I'll find the route to Asia by going west, right? Mm-hmm. Nobody wanted to fund Columbus. Mm-hmm. The Spanish decide to fund Columbus only after the Portuguese strike it rich in Elmina. And the Spanish do so out of essentially geopolitical envy. This upstart nation, Portugal, has acquired control over an undreamed of quantity of gold. And out of nowhere, they have become a powerful court that can hold their own with us on the Iberian Peninsula. We must also try to find a sources of wealth in the, in the tropics. That is when the, the, the Spanish fund Columbus's voyages. By the way, <clears throat> Columbus, all the books that have been written about Columbus, almost none of them mention the fact that Columbus and many of the other most famous navigators of that era, before their famous feats, Columbus discovering, quote unquote, the Americas, Vasco mm-hmm. da Gama discovering a route to India, Bartolomeu mm-hmm. Diaz discovering the Indian Ocean. All of those men and others among the most famous explorers of that age worked for the Portuguese prior to those feats in ferrying commerce, gold one way, European goods the other way, back and forth to West Africa in over two decades of trade before anybody even bothered fussing with the maritime route to to India. So so that's the second to the last thing I want to ask you about is you don't think of trade having involved Africa so deeply back then, but it was a significant market. And in fact, uh, certain empires like the Dutch had to find other sources of places to trade with in order to supply that region of Africa. Yes. Correct. Um, So before that happened with the Dutch, that was the story with the Portuguese, the Portuguese, when they set off in, in this gambit. I call it a moonshot. We, if we can only find gold in West Africa based on the legend of Mansa Musa, we'll, we'll become rich and, and prosperous, we the Portuguese, right? So that's their moonshot, right? Um, the Portuguese had a problem, though. All they had by way of trade goods, because they were so weak and poor, was salt, dried fish, and cork, the cork you put in bottles. The Portuguese didn't have any other products. And so when they showed up in West Africa seeking to trade for gold with Ghana, with this, pl- with this place in Ghana called Elmina, the local kingdom was perfectly happy to trade for gold with them, but the Portuguese didn't have things that they wanted. The material culture of West Africans back then 
wasn't was suffered didn't suffer in any meaningful way in comparison with the the, the material culture of the Portuguese, mm-hmm. and so the Portuguese were forced to go back to Europe and to use to develop circuits of trade within Europe to obtain goods from other parts of Europe that they figured the people in West Africa in, in Elmina would desire in exchange for their gold. And so this creates a whole nother subplot in this history where very important circuits of commerce between Northern and Southern Europe are driven by commerce with Africa, where the Portuguese go to Germany and to the so-called low countries and they obtain uh, worked metal, iron, brass, bronze on the one hand, or textiles, Manilas, they're shaped in something called manilas, which are bars of work metal, right? Or, um, or textiles. And they take these things back to, to West Africa. And f- f- in exchange for these items, the, the people at Almina are very willing to, to, to sell some of their gold, right? This is um, uh, the beginning of a kind of triangle, the use of the word triangular trade, we almost restrict to uh, a much later period in history where we think about Britain, the Caribbean, and continental America, right? Where goods are circulating in a triangle between those three places, right? In fact, the first triangle, triangular trade around uh, the Atlantic was the one I've just described, where the Portuguese traded with Elmina, but by virtue of getting goods from Northern Europe, right? A second one comes, and this is led by the Dutch a little bit later, where the, the, the West Africans didn't really need European textiles, right? European textiles, which become a huge trade item much later, but in the early period of these contacts were based on wool and flax. They found them lacking, actually. Yeah, they were lacking. They were crude in their finish and they were too heavy to wear in the tropics. And so that's one of the first things the Europeans tried to sell the Africans, their own textiles. And the Africans, sorry, that's kind of interesting, but we don't really need that, right? And so this sent the Europeans, as they explored further east, uh, in their engagements with, the, with, with India, with the Indian subcontinent, to buy uh, Indian cottons, which were the most in, um, advanced cotton wares in the world at that time, and so this becomes the second triangular trade where the Portuguese first and the Dutch later and subsequently the English buy cotton in huge volumes in India, bring it to West Africa initially to exchange for gold, later to buy slaves with, um, and, and, and then to trade on, onward into Europe or into the New World. So that's uh, another iteration of the triangular trade. And so, and, and that kind of trading relationship, you mentioned the Caribbean, but the other thing I would like you to talk a little bit more about, because I was fascinated to find this out, is how the West Indians was an important source of support for New England. Oh, it was more than an important source of support. Um, so, um, you know, everybody likes to tell nice stories about themselves. I think this is human nature. I don't want to leave anyone feeling belittled when I speak about this, right? Mm-hmm. But mainland North America, economically speaking, was just not a very happening place for a really long time, right? Okay. The real wealth creation until cotton took off at the end of the 18th century in the American South, the real wealth creation in the Western Hemisphere was in the Caribbean. Okay. On the island of Jamaica, the per capita income of white people in the island of Jamaica was 30 times higher 
than the per capita income of white people in mainland North America in what became the United States, right? Um, in the 18th century, um, two thirds of France's external trade came from the sole island of Hispaniola, which is where Haiti is, right? And all of that was based on it, both in the case of the English residents of uh, of the English speaking Caribbean and and in terms of Haiti, the prison industrial labor complex production of sugar, in other words, plantation grown sugar. This was the item that made the world turn for Europeans. This was the most important business going period by a very far distance, right? And the main the 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 original colonies. Uh, of Britain on the mainland in the United States sustained, sustained themselves by provisioning the Caribbean islands where slave grown uh, sugar and other commodities were concentrated. I told you how much wealth tiny Barbados produced for England, right? The soil, the use of the, so the land was so valuable for the production of sugar in a place like Barbados and subsequently in Jamaica and, and many other sh uh, sugar growing islands land was so valuable that it didn't make sense to, let's say, raise horses or to have forestry or to um, grow food or to do any of the or many other kinds of economic activity you might imagine, right, uh, from, from, uh, from, from a, a, a political space, right? And so the United States, and prior to that, the American colonies of England, mm. subsisted on sending the supplies of all the things that the, these very, very rich colonies of Barbados and Jamaica and Saint-Domingue and Hispaniola, et cetera, um, uh, needed in order to um, uh, supply themselves, right? So everything from foodstuffs to alcohol to livestock to finished goods like furniture, all of that stuff came from the mainland and was bought up by um, these very rich markets in, in, uh, in the Caribbean. Um, and, and that's what allowed uh, people to survive. That was the, that was the principal economic focus of the 13 colonies. Literally their livelihood. Okay. So before Literally. we get to the Q and a portion, I want to leave time with the, uh, going back to the beginning uh, what is the danger of leaving Africa outside of history? You mentioned this several times in terms of the way people are educated about world history. Um, so danger is an interesting word. There's no physical peril, right? Uh, you, we're not going to all keel over because we've been leaving Africa out of the story. Africa has been left out of the story all, all along, right? So you, one might ask, well, maybe there isn't any danger, right? Mm -hmm. But the danger is a psych, the, the, the actual danger is a psychological danger. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it is a, um, uh, it produces a situation where we um, don't accredit um, uh, factors in our collective success to the sacrifice of uh, population groups that constituted the principal brunt of the labor that went into that success. Let me give you an example. That was not a terribly articulate answer for you. Prior to the year 1820, four times as many people were brought to the so-called New World from Africa brought by Europeans 
to the new world from Africa than from Europe. Let me repeat that number. Prior to 1820, four times more people were brought across the Atlantic from Africa than from Europe. And so when I fire up certain television networks or listen to certain kinds of political discussions in this country, it's hard to avoid hearing um, uh, yeah. these, the kinds, these kinds of, well, well, I'm not even going to go there. Yes. But these kinds of stories that, that inferences that the real Americans mm-hmm. are uh, of a particular racial caste. Right. And that typically, as I've heard this, typically means Europeans, that America really is a European country, that American values really come from Europe, that American identities really bound up in Europeanness, that all of the things that make American great, or almost all of them, actually directly or indirectly derived from Europe or from Europeans or people of European extraction who came here and settled here. Right. And we are left with this idea that everyone who doesn't come from those sorts of identity backgrounds are superfluous or are, are here at the sufferance of others, right? When in fact, it was that four times more people who came from Africa who laid the very foundation of the wealth and success and power of the United States. A lot of that was brute force, muscle, labor, sweat, and blood, but it was not all brute force, muscle, labor, and sweat, and blood. It was um, a genius also, a genius that can be seen everywhere in American culture. So no European thinks Americans are like Europeans, right? Europeans think Americans, Americans think, oh, we are this European descended nation, right? This is like a continuation of Europe's story. Europeans don't see the United States that way. And the, the thing that most distinguishes American culture which is still, at the, as of this moment, uh, numerically speaking, a majority white culture uh, from European culture is actually, I'm going, I'm, because we're speaking about Africa and Africans, I'm emphasizing this, but what, the point I'm going to make right now is not limited to Africa and Africans, but is largely consists of the input of these four times more people who came from Africa prior to 1820, who laid the foundations for everything that we take for granted, including our identity, our culture, our music, the way we walk, the way we dress, the way we talk, everything. It's whole. It's everywhere. You only have to open your eyes and look for it and you'll see it. Uh, But there's this ideology that sort of permeates everything that would like for us to deny it. And my book is written in part in the spirit of refusal to allow us to not see anymore what demands to be seen. On that note, it's also an excellent book and goes a long way toward that. We have two questions uh, in the chat. I will take them in the order they came across. Uh, what do you believe your book includes that is hard to find when teaching history? Um. So I wish I could see this person. Uh, thank you for the question, first of all. But I, you would be a very strange individual if you knew many of the stories that I've told uh, tonight uh, and just in the very limited sample of my book, like the fact that um, the age of discovery begins in uh, uh, acts uh, committed by West Africans uh, uh, making pilgrimage to, to Cairo and Mecca, for example, or that um, uh, the uh, sh- the, the value of sugar uh, uh, grown through the extortion of labor on prison industrial uh, systems 
by Africans in the Caribbean was much greater, demonstrably greater in a little place like Barbados, not to mention the entire Caribbean, than was all of the wealth carted away in the Spanish galleons. Or that English democracy grew out of the coffee house and the newspaper, and that these things were also the byproducts of labor extorted from Africans in prison industrial labor camps. These are just three little examples. Or that in the 16th century, African kingdoms had diplomats in Europe um, and had um, uh, actually an archbishop um, named by the Vatican in that period, who is now buried in the Vatican. Um, I would be very surprised um, if many of the people listening to this knew these stories. And my book is suffused with these kinds of stories. And these are not uh, flights of fancy. Um, This is a big book. Uh, It's a a book that will challenge uh, some readers uh, precisely because it contains so much that you will not have been uh, exposed to before. But it's also a heavily documented book, meaning that if you look to the back of the book, everything that surprises you is footnoted abundantly through reliable, serious scholarship, right? This is not... I have a significant book list based on your book now. <laughs> there you go. So that's a good point. Uh, the next question is, what has been the most unexpected thing you've encountered in your journey with the book? Um, so I, I guess the, one of the most uh, surprising things to me uh, was this origin story of the of the age of discovery that I shared with, with, with uh, our audience tonight, I had worked for prior to uh, joining Columbia university in 2008, I had worked for over a decade in East Asia Uh, and my immediate prior book before this present one was a book of East of Chinese history. In effect, uh, looking at how China has understood itself as a world power across the ages and how China has come to understand and to uh, discuss uh, a a particular moment in time um, between the mid-19th century and the mid-20th century when China was essentially badly eclipsed in terms of its wealth and power for the first time in its history by the West. And so uh, my previous book was about how do Chinese people think about that and, you know, what are the what are their philosophical and historical bases for believing in their, their themselves as kind of a global power, right? And in the research for that book, one of the things I looked for in the archives was the earliest voyages of discovery of Europeans to East Asia. And I had accepted, like I believe the previous questioner must have accepted, this school child t- t- tale that the age of discovery was really about trying to get around Africa and that there was nothing special about Africa or nothing actually that retained the interest of the Europeans and that they had to overcome this obstacle to get to the great wealth centers of Asia, right? And in researching that previous book, I come across in the Portuguese archives of the 15th and 16th century, contemporary Portuguese accounts, which make very clear that for over a century and a half, the Portuguese obsession was with West Africa. And as a pretty curious person who's had a fairly broad experience of the world and who loves to read, I had simply never encountered that before. That stunned me. 
that's where that's one of the proximate starting points for this book. I, I had to finish the other book. I couldn't just change the topic midstream. I finished that book, but the seed was planted. I said, I've got to go back to this. And so that, to, if I, I, I could pick other surprising things, but that's kind of the starting surprise that I experienced. And there's a, there's a question uh, in the chat now. It's, it's kind of long-winded, so I'll, I'll try to rephrase it, and it relates to a question I had in general. So right now, we are sort of an experiencing uh, renewed interest in slavery, uh, but only in, the, in America, right? The 1619 Project, 400 Souls, you've heard of these books. In your book, you also mention the fact that Africa is left out of world history classes. And I don't know if you know this, but the college board, the people who come up with the advanced placement courses have posited the idea of an Africana studies capstone course. And I'd be very curious to know, do you think your book should be included as say part of the regular world history curriculum, or would you want to see it as part of a a special course on Africa? I think there's room for both of those things, actually. I don't think it's an either or an or. Like, I think every every college-aspiring student in the United States should know something about African history, uh, far beyond what we traditionally teach uh, students in even our best high schools about Africa. That And, and I, so I think that my book, I, I'm sorry to sound like I'm plugging my book in a crass oh, no, commercial okay. way, but, away, please. But, but I think my book offers, you know, a grist for that and that it is based on serious scholarship. Um, and, and it's not, you know, a once over easy kind of story. Right. Mm-hmm. But I want to come at this question from another direction. And that is to say, Listen, I, I'm not uh, making bones or uh, uh, no bones about 1619 or 400 souls or any other book written by anyone else um, that all, I think, serve uh, their purposes very well and have their place in our conversations, have actually a, a very big place in our conversations, rightfully so, right? But there's something about Americans that I think um, uh, my book is aimed at chipping away at. Americans whatever their color, have an extremely exceptionalist idea of themselves. We Americans, not I'm not pointing my finger at you or anyone in the audience. We, we have an extremely exceptional view of ourselves, right? And this sort of runs through everything, right? Uh, and it, down to, when it comes down to this topic of my book, uh, you come to realize that Americans, you know, slavery was, as I said earlier in this conversation, truly a foundational experience to to America, to American history, right? But nonetheless, we have a kind of a very distorted view about American slavery in the sense that we, because we Americans are so exceptionalist oriented, we tend to think naively and incorrectly that American slavery was kind of you know, representative of the slave experience or that this was the main slave story, right? Mm-hmm. And nothing could be further from the truth. Is and this it takes... That even in tragedy, we tend to think too much of ourselves? Is that... Absolutely. Like, okay. I take nothing against away from the story of American slaves. I can't emphasize that enough. But our story of slavery is a small tributary of a much bigger river of enslavement and of this phenomenon of extortion using the prison industrial labor camp that I've just, that I've spent so much time uh, speaking to 
tonight. Uh, Barbados, one third the size of Los Angeles, had as many enslaved people worked to death as we did here in the United States, right? Brazil had at least 10 times as many people brought there and very largely worked to death in this complex than we did in this country. And so it would be very healthy, I think, for Americans, not only to come to terms with this, uh, with its ignorance of Africa, which is almost absolute and total, but also to do much more to reinsert the history of the birth of this republic in enslavement in much more deeply into a much bigger and broader story of Atlantic interconnection around this tragedy of enslavement of people from Africa. Okay. Well said. And so on that note, how do you think sort of the newer databases we have like Slave Voyage, slavevoyages.org, the, the Atlas of the Atlantic Slave Trade, which has all of the data and the bills of lading, where do you see that fitting in between your book and some of the more recent work that focuses only on America? Do you think that helps support the point you just made? Well, so the Atlantic Slave Voyages website, which I recommend highly to anyone who's interested in following up on, on this, and in fact, it's also footnoted in my book, um, uh, shows uh, in a very detailed way, uh, sort of a minutiously detailed way, the distribution of enslaved Africans throughout the New World across all of the centuries of this prettified thing called the Atlantic trade, slave trade, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you begin to explore that database, even just a little bit, you come quickly to understand, again, this is not to diminish our experience as Americans. My ancestors were slaves. That's the last thing that I want to do, right? But it also helps you understand the much grander dimensions of the bigger phenomenon of the whole transatlantic enslavement experience and this system of exploitation. And it also, I, I'd sort of like to emphasize one final thing that um, uh, on this point, that, and that is that, you know, one of the ways of controlling people of African descent in a variety of places where they were um, uh, uh, brought to in the new world, right? was by, by, by siloing them and by convincing them through a variety of processes, education, acculturation, uh, indoctrination, propaganda, uh, mass, mass culture, that, that Af people of African descent in one place have almost nothing to do with people of African descent in another place. I understand why the systems of oppression that operated the, the transatlantic slave trade and, and the prison industrial um, labor system wished to do that, you know, the potential of Africans sort of teaming up together and creating alliances across their petty chauvinisms of different languages and different European systems is immense. And so it became important to kind of brainwash Africans that, you know, Af people of African descent in one place or another, that in fact, they're unique. They don't have anything to do with uh, people of African descent in another place. And in fact, even to look down, to look askance at them, right? Um, it's not uncommon to find, it certainly back in the day, it was not uncommon to find among African-Americans a kind of horror 
that somebody would associate them with Africans. Like, I'm not an African, I'm an American, right? As if to be an American was somehow, there's something more noble about being an American than being an African. That's silly, right? Human beings are equally noble everywhere, right? Um, and so, um, you know, part of understanding the kind of the, the breadth and the sweep of this experience is also about overcoming our petty chauvinisms and understanding that the slave experience in the United States is part of this much bigger slave experience and the things we have in common via this experience are much more important than the things that we, uh, that differentiate us across these boundaries. Thank you, Professor. Well said. We are out of time. There are no more questions left. Thank you again. And thank you everyone for coming. Thank you, Drago. Howard French is the author of Born in Blackness, Africa, Africans, and the Making of the Modern World, 1471 to the Second World War. This program was presented on February 7th, 2022 by Town Hall Seattle. To find the full event and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, kuow.org speakers. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast and share your comments. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon.